0: Hello, and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral and max facial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstuky at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions. So please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Benjamin Heckler. He is an oral and surgeon practicing in Durham, North Carolina at Duke University. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast again.
1: Yeah, thanks, Grant. It's great to be back.
0: Yeah, this is great. I'm excited for our topic today. We're going to be talking about osteomyelitis and really excited to kind of run through this and talk to you about everything that's involved in it. But first, could you just kind of define what is
1: osteomyelitis? Sure. So, yeah, I think this is a great point to begin on because, you know, osteomyelitis is really misunderstood, I think, by a lot of individuals, not just in our specialty, but in infectious disease and and other specialties as well. So, you know, if you look at the word, osteomyelitis means bone marrow inflammation. It's very similar how if you look at osteonecrosis, that means bone death or dead bone. So osteomyelitis truly can be multiple entities that result in bone marrow inflammation. And so many times we think of osteomyelitis being infectious only. And in many cases, in the majority of cases, that is true. But osteomyelitis, there's actually a a whole nother type of osteomyelitis. Many of you have probably heard of this as diffuse sclerosing osteomyelitis or primary chronic osteomyelitis that occurs in the mandible. And that's not due to infection. And so we treat that differently. So In the most simple sense, osteomyelitis is inflammation in the bone. Really, it just means there is a bony problem going on that may or may not be due to an infection.
0: Okay, that is very helpful to discuss. And the different types, you kind of mentioned the sclerosing type,
1: and then are there any other types that we want to discuss? Yeah, so there are different classifications, and and honestly, it gets really confusing because there are, you know, tons of eponyms historically, like we all hear about Garay's osteomyelitis. I think the most clear and the most widespread classification is one that's called the Zurich classification. So this was developed by Mark Bolton-Sperger and Gerald Eirich at the University Hospital in Zurich, and basically, they split this into three types. Really, two of them are, are similar. So that is acute osteomyelitis, secondary chronic osteomyelitis, and primary chronic osteomyelitis. So the first two are pretty similar, and they're infectious. So acute osteomyelitis is what most of us think about, which is infectious osteomyelitis. Usually it's associated with either bad teeth or trauma or some other type of infectious etiology. And this occurs within four weeks. That's the acute timeframe. It's kind of arbitrarily set at four weeks. Many times it has acute purulence, draining sinus tracts, bone sequestration, etc. When that gets past four weeks, it's automatically called secondary chronic osteomyelitis. So same etiology, but many times when it gets in the chronic phase, it's not as actively purulent. There are many times our draining sinus tracts that have dried up, but you can still have some of this progress. So those two are pretty similar. And then the primary chronic osteomyelitis, which is this diffuse sclerosing that we sometimes call it, that's completely different. It's actually more of an immune dysregulatory or autoimmune almost type of disease process. It's not due to infection, and it's treated completely differently. And I know we'll probably get to that later on. And, and quite honestly, many of these patients get treated by surgeons and infectious disease providers when really they should be treated either by surgical providers or rheumatologists because of the immune phenomena. Okay. That's really helpful to understand those different types.
0: And then let's move on to how do you diagnose, you know, if a patient comes into your office
1: and you're kind of thinking maybe this is osteomyelitis, how do you definitively diagnose this? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and I think what you said is key. You know, if you're thinking that maybe this is osteomyelitis, because no one walks into your office and you say, oh, this is osteomyelitis for sure. Let's just start right away. You know, you can have a high suspicion, but you got to think about other processes. So in addition to the infectious osteomyelitis and the non-infectious that we just talked about, that primary chronic osteomyelitis, you always got to have a suspicion for other things in the bone, right? For pathology, benign and malignant, other bone problems like benign fibroosseous lesions. So, you know, how would you work up anything that you were considering this? Well, I think it's important, first of all, you know, to look at the history and physical exam. As we just talked about, There may or may not be an idea that this is infectious. And many times if this patient says I'm having bone pain and swelling and trismus, but I didn't have a history of pus, I don't have any bone exposure, I don't have any draining sinus tracts, well, maybe this isn't the infectious type. Whereas if they have acute purulent drainage, yeah, maybe you're thinking more of infectious. But either way, I think the way that you work this up is, is multiple. One is, of course, imaging. Probably the easiest way in the office is either a CBCT or a plain panoramic radiograph. Those are great for initial examinations to give you an idea of if you have osteolytic changes, osteosclerotic changes, do you have what we call proliferative periostitis, which is that onion skinning that we talk about a lot, or do you have a bone lesion, right? If you get an imaging study and there's a radiolucency that's unilocular, well, we're probably talking about pathology. So that's the first step. And and then the second step, and it may not need to occur until you have additional information, be it a bone biopsy or be it three-dimensional imaging, is what do we need to send any tissue for? And speaking of a biopsy, I think if you're considering osteomyelitis, I think it's helpful to send tissue, namely bone, for both micro and path. Pathology will help you, of course, rule out Any frank pathologic lesions, but it also will help you see if there's bony sclerosis and bony remodeling, which many times is seen in these non infectious types. And then, of course, microbiologic analysis is helpful. There's a bunch of debate upon, you know, should you culture pus that's draining in the neck or in the mouth, or is it going to be contaminated? But I think the one thing that's really helpful, if you can do it, is send a piece of bone. You know, that should be sent, in my opinion, for anaerobic, aerobic, fungal acid fast bacteria and actinomyces if you can, depending upon how much you have and where you're sending this, you may not have the possibility to do that. But I, I think sending off bone or granulation tissue if you if you can't for some reason do a bone biopsy for both pathology and micro is, is really important up front. Okay. Now
0: I know a lot of the times when I'm thinking it's osteo and I get a CT scan, especially if it's you know a, a medical grade one at at a hospital facility almost always the radiologist will read it and say osteomyelitis, you know, just off of the the CT scan. How are they able to do that
1: just off of imaging and not off of clinical stuff? They are not, Grant. You are exactly right. You know, we all get this, right? All throughout residency and all after residency, you see a radiographic interpretation that usually says something, depending upon the radiologist's, you know, boldness. It says something along the lines of, could be clinically consistent with osteomyelitis or some other process. And you're right. You can't diagnose osteomyelitis off of a CT image alone. And that's part of the problem, I think, is that when we don't really know what's going on, we get a CT scan. And if the radiologist says, oh, consistent with osteomyelitis, we think, great, there's a radiographic diagnosis, we move forward. But osteomyelitis is not A radiographic diagnosis. It is a clinical diagnosis with also those own biopsies and bone microbiology. So I think a couple of uh, things to think about when you're looking at the imaging and then you look at the radiologist report is you know, number one, if you know the clinical scenario that teeth were recently removed, particularly in the maxilla, where you know the trabeculation is less dense it's going to look irregular. And we all know that as oral and maxillofacial surgeons, and the radiologist maybe doesn't know that. So it's very unlikely that if there was a defect at a socket, that that in and of itself is osteomyelitis. The other thing that a lot of times is called osteomyelitis is when you see a draining sinus tract through bone, you know, we'll get a three-dimensional image. We see that osteolytic tract going usually through the buccal cortex and that's not necessarily osteomyelitis. Osteomyelitis is a pathologic type of bone marrow infection. And so if something is draining through a sinus tract alone, but it's not actually affecting the bone, you know, we many times just call that a perulis, right? Or some people will say a say a gumboil. So you really have to have a clinical picture of some type of infection ideally some bony biopsies and microbiologic studies that say there's some type of bacterial etiology from bone. And in addition to that, radiographic findings that show kind of some local, but maybe local and more diffuse bony changes.
0: Okay. That's helpful. Super helpful to know because I frequently get, you know, radiology readings and it's, they ended by saying consistent with osteomyelitis. And you almost feel this pressure To treat it that way, even though the clinical exam may not support that. And you're thinking, uh, am I going to get in trouble here legally if I don't treat it as an osteo? So it's helpful to know that you need to back this all up with clinical findings and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I think a lot of times that's the scenario where you think, well, I didn't really think this was osteo, but now the radiologist is claiming it is. So what's my obligation? And, you know, in, the bottom line is that you have to go by your assessment of the patient that may involve a second opinion that may involve calling a colleague that may even involve talking to the radiologist and saying, Hey, I saw your read. If you know the radiologist, or if you can you know, easily get in contact with them, I saw your read and, and really clinically, it doesn't look like that. Here's what it looks like to me. Would that be consistent? And many times the radiologist will say, oh, yeah, I would totally be consistent with that too. You know, the radiologist is trying to save themselves also. You got to realize that, right? They don't want to miss osteomyelitis. And so if they say, oh, you know, it's probably fine. And then it turns out that the patient gets a hemimandibulectomy later for osteo, they're in trouble too, so they're kind of hedging also and trying to protect themselves with the read. So sometimes a conversation with them really helps to clarify. Yeah, I didn't really think that, but you know, I had to write that because it could be okay. That's helpful. And then just in regards to imaging,
0: you know, you mentioned they come in the office and do CBCT or a pano, and everything is high suspicion for osteomyelitis. Do you send them, you know, for further more advanced imaging, or what do you recommend?
1: Yeah, I think it depends upon the clinical scenario. So, you know, if they come into your office and you have a concern for kind of a localized process. And by localized, I understand that's a little bit vague, but, you know, the patient had, let's say a tooth or two extracted, and there's some continued symptoms and pain and purulence there versus you get a panoramic or a CBCT in your office and you see changes that involve the entire height of the mandible, you know, down to the inferior border, or you see significant changes, you know, anterior posteriorly along the majority of the body of the mandible or something like that. I think if you see changes very locally, and if this is something that, again, based upon your clinical suspicion, you kind of have an idea which category this falls into and, and why this patient may have you know, in this case, let's say infectious osteomyelitis, I think it's reasonable to consider, you know, treating that yourself up front without getting additional medical grade imagings, be it CT, MRI, whatever you want to consider. Whereas if if you're seeing those changes on your in-office imaging, again, be it panoramic or CBCT, that in my opinion are, you know progressing past the inferior alveolar canal or a significant portion of the mandible, yeah, that's probably when this is not going to be managed just as an outpatient setting without some type of, you know, consultations. And so, again, it's a soft call, but that's kind of what I go by. I, I think it mirrors really well the updated 2022 EMRANGE guidelines. When you look at, you know, we call this stage one, stage two, and stage three, and you can even kind of look at what's called the modified Notani criteria for osteoradionecrosis, stage one, stage two, stage three. If we're talking stage one, where just a small amount of the mandible is involved, that's probably something that we can manage with imaging in the office, or at least start management. But if we're getting towards two into three, very likely they're going to need advanced imaging and probably expert consultations. Got it. Okay,
0: and then in regards to timeline, you know, kind of generally, what I was, you know, taught is okay. A patient gets an extraction, and usually osteo doesn't develop for I don't know four to six to eight weeks later. Is there a certain timeline that has to pass before you can definitively say, oh yeah, this is osteomyelitis, or how soon can that develop?
1: Yeah, so there's actually not a agreed upon timeline, which is a little bit different from some of the other things, right? So when we talk about Imranj, there's a timeline of eight weeks. And the reason there's a timeline of eight weeks is because when you extract teeth, it's possible that it would take a number of weeks, you know, we say up to eight to heal that socket, right? So if there's exposed bone before eight weeks, we say, well, it may still be healing. Same thing with osteoradionecrosis, which is, you know, a similar bony pathology phenomenon. Depending upon your study, people will say it needs to be exposed for three to six months. Now, none of us who are treating this are waiting six months to treat these patients, but, you know, that's agreed upon timeline. Really, there's no universally agreed upon timeline to say that, oh, this can't be osteomyelitis, or at least let's talk about infectious osteomyelitis, until four to six to eight weeks, you know, when you look at that Zurich classification that we just talked about, anything less than four weeks is automatically considered acute osteomyelitis. The one interesting point in this is that we had talked about earlier this primary chronic osteomyelitis, where these patients many times have this inflammatory response, but they don't have pus, they don't have draining sinus tracts, you know, that by definition, has to be greater than four weeks. That's the only one that really has that time course. And again, I think the reason that that was developed was because these patients, they don't have pus, so there's no evidence of active infection. They don't have draining sinus tracts, but they're having atypical pain and swelling and such. And if that were to happen after an extraction, again, we may consider that to be within the realm of normal within the first number of weeks up to four. And so, you know, if you have a patient who has purulent drainage from an extraction socket within the first number of weeks, are we calling that osteomyelitis or not? I don't think anyone without, you know, again, getting biopsies, doing additional imaging is going to call that true mandibular osteomyelitis within the first week or two. That might just be a site infection, a socket infection. But you're hitting on a really good point in that it gets very difficult to determine early on what we're really dealing with. And this is why, too, mandibular osteomyelitis in particular, A lot of times the diagnosis of this is somewhat delayed because there is this uncertainty early on. Is this just a, you know, a stitch abscess, a a surgical site infection that's not true osteomyelitis like we were talking about earlier? Or is this something that's progressing? I think the important part is, is when you have a patient that either you have done a procedure on or someone else has, and it is early after the procedure and there's a concern for maybe this is becoming an osteomyelitis type picture, you need to see them relatively frequently and see which way this is going. Is it truly resolving? And you know, this is just someone that we're gonna say, oh, you had a post-operative surgical site infection, put you on a week of an antibiotic or something. Or is this someone that this is truly developing over the course of the next weeks? And you know, in retrospect, we can say, okay, that was kind of prodromal osteomyelitis. It's, it's really tricky as you're getting at the first couple of weeks. Okay,
0: and then another question I had for you is, in regards to patient factors that can make them more likely to get osteomyelitis, who are the patients that you know you're kind of thinking, oh, that that's a, a likeliness, or maybe they come in at that six week mark and things are you know looking kind of like osteomyelitis, and then you look at their history and they have X, Y, and Z health issues. You know what would kind of raise a red flag for you?
1: Yes, you know osteomyelitis. Right is a pathologic bone healing or bone infection process in most cases. Again, the caveat is this primary chronic osteomyelitis is not infectious, but most of the time this is infectious. And there are a number of conditions that are associated with developing osteomyelitis and then also you know, failure of treatment of osteomyelitis. And not surprisingly, when you look at the studies, they're usually the same. So, this has been studied in, in long bone osteomyelitis as well as mandibular osteomyelitis. A lot of the original research on this was done out of the UT medical branch in Galveston, Texas. And they, interestingly enough, studied both. They studied long bone osteomyelitis first prospectively, and then they looked at mandibular osteomyelitis in their hospital retrospectively. And there's a little bit of discrepancy as far as some of their results and other groups' results. But in general, things that are immunocompromising will definitely increase the risk of osteomyelitis and increase the risk of recurrent osteomyelitis or failure of treatment. So the things that are found almost universally are poorly controlled diabetes. That affects not only wound healing, but it also affects the type of bacteria that colonize the osteomyelitis. Smoking, variably. In my personal experience, smoking absolutely does have an effect on healing, particularly if you try to reconstruct them with bone simultaneously in those larger cases. And then other immunocompromising conditions, you know, namely, again, uncontrolled HIV that results in AIDS in addition to the uncontrolled diabetes. You know, there are other cases as well. You know, you can go into all of these syndromes cases or patients that have, you know, inborn defects in white blood cells and such. But the main ones that I have seen over and over again are these patients that have this type of immunocompromised picture, be it diabetes, smoking, or AIDS, HIV. Okay. But still
0: osteomyelitis can happen just in a healthy, whatever, teenager or adult.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes there truly is not a good reason as to why this occurred in an individual You know, I recently treated an individual who had a mandibular third molar extracted. He's 18, healthy. He developed true acute and then secondary chronic osteomyelitis of the mandibular angle. And, you know, he had absolutely no risk factors whatsoever. All the cultures that were obtained showed no, you know, atypical organisms and nothing in his workup showed why he would have been at risk. So that still does happen. And that's why you do have to keep that level of suspicion there. You know, as you were saying, when people come in within a few weeks and there's a problem, when do I call this osteomyelitis? Well, maybe not right away, but just because the patient's healthy, you shouldn't think, well, it's not possible. I'll just see him once for follow up, send him home on some antibiotics and we'll be good. You do have to keep that suspicion for every case. Got it. Okay. So let's say we have a
0: patient in the office who, you know, has had had extraction, maybe they're at six weeks You take a, a CBCT. There's pus there. The CBCT looks like osteo and you're thinking, okay, yeah, this is probably osteomyelitis. What should you
1: do there in the office right then? You know, what is a good plan of action? So I think a good plan of action at that point is to try to obtain bony samples, both for microbiology, again, aerobic, anaerobic, actinomyces, AFB, as well as fungal, if possible, and then pathologic specimens in formalin. You know, depending upon the diagnosis of that will really tell you if you're probably dealing with infectious osteomyelitis or if there's another pathologic process that has resulted in osteomyelitis, or if you're dealing with something completely different. You know, in the scenario you gave, This is looking like infectious osteomyelitis. It's six weeks out. You have bony changes that you see on your CBCT in your clinic and there's purulence. You never know though. You know This can very likely, and, and I see this a lot just with my patient population, when I see a lot of osteonecrosis is you may biopsy this and this is actually a metastatic focus of their metastatic breast cancer or metastatic prostate cancer, right? And so does that change the way you manage it? Well, maybe, maybe not in certain scenarios, but I think this is why it's really important when you're thinking of osteomyelitis to send things for both micro and path. And then And based upon that result, you can determine what needs to be done. Does this patient need to be sent to a academic institution, you know, for resection reconstruction? Does this patient also need to be sent back to their treating oncologist and say, hey, they actually have metastatic disease in the facial bones now? Or is this a whole nother process, you know, an unexpected diagnosis that you need to get someone else involved? That doesn't mean that you can't treat an obvious infection with antibiotics while you're waiting for the result. I think that's totally appropriate. But what I think would be inappropriate is to, before you have any biopsy, before you have any cultures, just say, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, debride this whole thing in the office. Then sure enough, you get your biopsy back and something else was going on.
0: Got it. Okay. All right. And so we do the biopsy you know, comes back in a few days and they say, yeah, everything is consistent with osteomyelitis. What's our next step?
1: So, this kind of takes us down the algorithm of is this infectious or non-infectious? And this is something that I, I talked about at my Amos lecture just last week at our national meeting. So, You know, if this is infectious, so let's use this scenario that you described where this patient is a number of weeks out, there's a history of pus that is telling us this is infectious. In that case, we get our biopsies. It's going to show, you know, there's acute on chronic inflammation in the bone. Let's say there's no other pathology. And honestly, at this point, who cares what the micro shows, even if it shows mixed oral pharyngeal flora, we're treating this for an acute osteomyelitis that if it's been six weeks has turned into secondary chronic. The way I treat this and the way I recommend considering treating this is again, very similar to the 2022 MRONS recommendations. And I think that's because the MRONS recommendations that were updated this year basically recommend consideration for surgical treatment based upon the degree of involved bone. So if you look at the algorithms for the MRONS update, if the bone that's involved is, you know, above the inferior alveolar canal, you can perform uh, aggressive brony debridement, or, or as they say it, they're a true marginal resection back to healthy bone. When you talk about what healthy bone is in osteomyelitis, typically what's talked about is what's called the paprika sign. So the paprika sign is when you remove bone back to punctate healthy bleeding bone. You know, many of us are familiar with this now with osteonecrosis. We deal with this a lot. And so, you know, I think if it's a localized area on alveolar bone, you may need to n- remove more teeth if they're in this involved bone. You may need to debride or even do a frank little marginal resection there. Whereas if you're getting on to the higher stages of, again, EMRANGE ORN, you may actually have to perform a segmental resection and reconstruction. And again, I tend to go by those algorithms from the 2022 EMRANGE guidelines for osteomyelitis too. If you see bony changes that are down to or past the inferior alveolar nerve, probably this patient's going to need resection reconstruction. You know, a good way to know what the involvement may be even before you see the patient or before imaging is, are they having paresthesia, Right if they're having paresthesia, you know, bone is involved down around the inferior alveolar canal. And so very likely you're gonna see on imaging, you know, a mixture of lytic and sclerotic changes down that far. And that's when, you know, the individuals that I work with, I say, hey, you probably need to consider that this patient's going to need an OR procedure for resection and reconstruction. At the same time, whenever this is definitively treated, I recommend sending off biopsies again, both for micro and for PATH, because number one, things could have changed. And number two, even if they haven't changed, it's nice to have some consistency in your biopsy and your final specimens if it ends up going that way. Got it. Okay. Okay.
0: It seems like most of the ones I've encountered, you know, are because generally I see them around that, I'd say six week mark. And, you know, we diagnose it. Usually it's above the intraveolar canal. And generally our CT scan is very helpful because it shows definitive like sequestrum, you know, and the radiolucency around it. And, yep. Or maybe two or three of them. And I'm thinking, oh, I know exactly where those are now from the scan. I'm going to go in there, I'm going to remove that sequestrum clean it, you know, make sure it's bleeding bone, and then that usually does the job along with the IV antibiotics. But you know, in which cases do you usually see more advanced osteo that's extending below the canal?
1: Well, I think I see a lot of the more advanced ones in cases that were primarily treated mm-hmm. medically. And what I mean by that is no one did an adequate debridement, or if you want to, you know, say a a localized marginal resection, I truly think, and again, going back to what we just talked about with the UT medical branch in Galveston, the, the studies that they did, you know, one of the quotes from some of their research that I really like is persistent osteomyelitis is a surgical disease. And, you know, that reminds me of something that my fellowship director, Dr. Carlson always said, which is dead bone is a surgical problem. And it's the same thing with osteomyelitis. And they said this in their studies 40 years ago at UTMB. And I totally agree with it today. Whereas the ones that progress and that need these larger resection reconstructions are the ones that are treated with a round of antibiotics. And then that didn't work or it works temporarily. Okay, let's try a different antibiotic. Okay, so we try a different antibiotic. Okay, that didn't work. So let's just try IV antibiotics. Well, this is a surgical problem osteomyelitis, osteonecrosis is a surgical problem. And so you have to use surgery, in my opinion, and again, based upon my interpretation of both my practice and the literature, you have to treat this upfront with some type of surgical procedure, be it a local debridement, a marginal resection, or again, in these really advanced cases, a segmental resection with using antibiotics potentially as an adjunct. You know, so I see those cases, they get into trouble, Grant, when it's only treated medically. It's just multiple rounds of antibiotics from different providers or different types of antibiotics. And before you know it, you're two or three months down the line. And now slowly, this has just progressed into a huge problem. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's a frustrating scenario
0: because, you know, if this patient would have been treated earlier, they probably could have avoided more, avoided loss of bone from a more advanced surgery. So, yeah, that can be frustrating. So, let's say you see this advanced patient that's down to the inferior border, you know, how do you go about your treatment and kind of resection and know how much to remove there? Yes.
1: Yeah, great question. So, again, let's take the same scenario you did before where this is clearly infectious osteomyelitis. Again, you know, acute osteomyelitis turning into secondary chronic, not this primary chronic non-infectious type. So, yes, let's say we get our advanced imaging, which in my case, I usually get a CT. Now, one thing I'll make a note of, and this is mainly for people that are getting imaging for others or are in a hospital setting, maybe doing the procedure. I almost always, when I'm getting medical grade imaging, I almost always will get a CT neck with contrast, ask them to include the mandible with fine cuts. And the reason is because if I'm going to do virtual surgical planning and potentially even, you know, vascular vascularized free tissue reconstruction i want to see the vessels in the neck and i want fine cuts of the mandible for virtual surgical planning if it's a huge defect on the initial imaging study a pano or an in-office cbct I will actually also have them get a CTA of the bilateral lower extremities with fine cuts through the fibula as well at the same time, because, you know, many times that's a discussion if they have a huge defect in the jaw. So upfront imaging is what I do there to plan my resection. You know, you asked, how do you plan your resection? Again, I do this the same way that it's recommended from the 2022 Imran paper, which is, you know, I think treating osteomyelitis like a tumor in a sense, and that you want clean margins, right? You want to get to clean, healthy, bony margins is how I treat this. And, you know, another quote that I really like from the UTMB group, which goes along with this is they say, as in tumor surgery, careful preoperative planning is critical to achieve a high rate of success. So again, like in tumor surgery. So I look at CT margins with these fine cuts. Sometimes it's very clear. Sometimes it's not. I'll be honest with you. But what I do is I try to plan a margin. So I try to say, okay, here's where the osteolytic and osteosclerotic changes are kind of fizzling out. Let's resect an additional centimeter. Some people may see that as overkill, but when you've got osteomyelitis that has progressed to the inferior border, right? And is taking a huge amount of the bone with it. You really do have to try to achieve a curative surgery up front. Otherwise, this is just going to continue to get out of control. So that's what I do. I plan this ideally virtually. Sometimes you don't have time to do that. But even if you don't have time to plan it virtually, I like to look at three-dimensional imaging and try to actually take an intentional margin as if this is the tumor. As far as the reconstruction in those cases, in my hands, it depends upon the location, the patient risks, and the size of the defect. So if the defect is less than about six or seven centimeters, I do not hesitate to get things done quickly and do posterior hip. I do that relatively frequently. We just did it a couple of weeks ago again on a gentleman. That works really well in my experience in most places, except for potentially the anterior mandible. I have some problems occasionally with dehiscence in those areas, but otherwise, I use that for my reconstruction. If the defect is significantly larger, then of course, vascularized free tissue transfer with something like a fibula is helpful. And that's why if I see a big defect, up front, I'm more likely to get three-dimensional imaging of the face and neck, but also of the lower extremities. You know, talking about what you do for this intraoperatively or, or preoperatively, we can get into that a little bit more if, if we wish. But you know, in my experience, in my opinion, and I know some other people have this as well, although some would disagree, I don't hesitate to do bony reconstruction at the same time as resection. Even if this is frankly purulent, I just treat it a little bit differently intraoperatively as far as am I irrigating everything with antibiotic irrigation before I put in my bone graft, you know, being really meticulous about closure and everything. But I try to do everything in a one-stage approach, if at all possible.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's helpful to the patient to avoid a second surgery. That's what we did as well in Chicago, always trying to, to graft it and reconstruct immediately. Yep. All right, as far as other adjuncts to treating, you know, as for example, HBO treatment, is there any good evidence that that helps?
1: So HBO is actually a very interesting topic when it comes to osteomyelitis because it's a little difficult to know the true effect of it because If you look when it was studied initially for osteomyelitis, which it was really studied for osteomyelitis a very, very long time ago. I mean, we're talking even before like the Marx papers for osteoradionecrosis and HBO. The problem with some of the early studies is that they used HBO in, quote, treatment resistant osteomyelitis. Well, you know, my question then is, did they actually diagnose the osteomyelitis correctly? And here's what I mean by that. This goes back to this whole distinction between this acute osteomyelitis or secondary chronic osteomyelitis, which is infectious, and then primary chronic osteomyelitis, which is non-infectious. So if you look, if you split the literature into these two, the infectious osteomyelitis versus the non-infectious, the primary chronic or the diffuse sclerosing osteomyelitis, there's no great evidence that using it routinely for the infectious osteomyelitis is helpful, you know, that being said, there have been animal studies that I know have know of that have looked at HBO versus nothing versus antibiotics for osteomyelitis, both in long bones and in mandibles. And the HBO helps with healing. I mean, we know that from basically every study with HBO, but it doesn't really cure osteomyelitis. There's always still osteomyelitic bone there if you don't do your surgery. And this goes back to what we were talking about that persistent osteomyelitis is a surgical problem. So I think it can be an adjunct for healing, but it can really be an adjunct for healing in almost any sense. Honestly, here at Duke, I like to use it a lot for even routine surgeries. Like if we do a resection for, let's say an aminoblastoma and we do a free fibular reconstruction, we have them do HBO in-house afterwards while they're here. And the reason is not because it helps with aminoblastoma healing or prevents osteomyelitis. It's because HBO helps with edema in general and pain in general. And so we use it for those type of things. And so, you know, is it a good adjunct for healing? It is. Is it an adjunct that's going to cure or help to cure infectious osteomyelitis? I don't really know. I don't think we have really great studies to determine that. But then going back over to the other type of osteomyelitis, the primary chronic or the diffuse sclerosing, the non-infectious, many people claim that when they use HBO for those cases, and again, these are patients that don't have infections, they don't have surgery, many people claim that this improves their pain and edema from that inflammatory process. Again, I think there's still some conflicting information. But it potentially has an adjunctive role, in my opinion, number one, just in healing in general. So after, you know, surgical intervention, be it for osteomyelitis or not, and potentially in some of these patients with the non-infectious types, if they haven't been responsive to other conservative measures. But I think it's really difficult, honestly, to parse out the effect in osteomyelitis. Okay, that's helpful to know for sure. I wish there was an easy answer, Grant. I wish I could just tell you yes or no, but I think it's a little more tricky. Yeah,
0: I mean, it makes sense if you're using it for a post-op healing standpoint. But you know, it seems like if you have these big pieces of necrotic bone, and it seems like that's got to go surgically as well as maybe doing some HBO healing. All right, one question, and this one maybe more splitting hairs, but let's say you have a patient who. You know, had one prolia injection like three months before an extraction. They get the extraction, and then two months later, you know, they come back with everything presenting as if it were osteomyelitis. There's no exposed bone to, you know, it just looks like osteomyelitis. You know, do you call this osteomyelitis? Do you call it MRONs? Does it even matter what you call
1: it? Do you treat it the same? How do you deal with that? Grant, why you got to do this to me? This is such a tricky question. <laughs> No, this is a great question. This comes up all the time. Actually, when I do mock boards for different residents, I bring up questions just like this on purpose, right? Because they're very thought-provoking and it really asks us to determine, well, why do we call something one thing versus the other? And the real question is the one you ended with, which is, does it matter, right? Does it matter? So here's my answer to this. Again, if you go by the Amos definition of Imranj, this would probably be called Imranj. Now, the tricky part you put in here is that there's no exposed bone right? So we know that the definition of EMRANGE is someone that's been exposed to anti resorptives and or or these anti-angiogenics that are known to cause EMRANGE, even if you only had one dose. If you have exposed bone for eight weeks or more, and if this is not metastatic disease or you haven't had radiation, right? Because if it's metastatic disease, it could be due to the metastatic disease, like we said, metastatic breast or prostate cancer. And if you've had head and neck radiation, then it automatically defaults to osteoradionecrosis. So if you meet all those criteria, even though if you only got one dose, we have to call it Imranj. But Interestingly, you said there's no exposed bone in this case, right? So do we call this stage zero MRANGE, right, which is no exposed bone that subsequently got osteomyelitic you know, change? Or is it just like you said, well, it's actually not osteomyelitis, or excuse me, it's, it's not actually MRANGE because it was one dose, there's no exposed bone, it was a long time ago. I mean, this is a great question. And I think this is one of the tricky aspects of defining these different processes, You know, in this case, I would call this Imranj, personally. But again, without exposed bone, you could say, well, is it really stage zero Imranj? The question that, again, you ended with, which is, does it matter? In my hands, it doesn't matter. Because, again, I treat osteomyelitis, as you've heard me say, very similar to the EMRANGE guidelines. I treat it identically. And so it doesn't matter for me, which is important, but it is a very good academic question. And I'm sure I cannot wait to hear people disagree with me about this one. But you're right. It's a very tricky situation. And, you know, osteonecrosis can become infected and then you have osteomyelitis on osteonecrosis. And and what do you do about that? Right. And again, in my hands, I treat them the same. Got it. Okay, that makes total sense to me.
0: And then it's Going to
1: this other type of,
0: you know, diffuse sclerosing, what, if any, surgical treatment is there for these types of patients?
1: This is a great question because this is so misunderstood and I think it continues to be misunderstood. Not that I have all the answers, but man, I first came across this when I was a resident and I remember just taking a very long time to wrap my mind around what was happening with these cases. So this PCO, primary chronic or diffuse sclerosing osteomyelitis, What's happening in these cases is that these patients, which many times are are women, not always, and some people will tell you there's two disease peaks, relatively younger people, 20s, 30s, and even children, and then people over 50. Now, again, that's not consistent with all the studies. But what's happening with these patients, as far as what we can tell, is that they are having some type of abnormal immune response. And in the studies that have looked at this, it appears to be osteoclast mediated, but the osteoclasts are being mediated in this fashion due to an imbalance between pro-inflammatory mediators and anti-inflammatory mediators. So, you know, if you think about it, going back to immunology, you talk about TNF-alpha, interleukin-1 and interleukin-6. These are all pro-inflammatory cytokines, and the studies have shown that in these patients, they have this imbalance. Again, these patients don't have exposed bone, they don't have purulence, they don't have draining sinus tracts, but many times they have these osteolytic, osteosclerotic changes on imaging that otherwise looks like, quote-unquote, osteomyelitis. And the trick with this, too, is many times it is stimulated by a procedure. Just how we talk about you know, an extraction can stimulate osteonecrosis, it's the same thing. So these patients are having bone pain and someone does an extraction and it just exacerbates the bone pain and then it gets better and then it comes back again and they say, well, it must've been the wrong tooth and they extract another tooth and then this keeps happening. And before you know it, they've got six months, eight months, 10 months in, and it looks like the bone is just totally destroyed. And what's happening again in these patients is some type of poorly understood immune dysregulation. In some patients, this burns itself out. I've had multiple patients that they don't require any treatment. You just monitor them on radiographic imaging, and this kind of calms itself out. The classic treatment for this has been anti-inflammatories, as you can imagine, based upon the etiology. So NSAIDs, steroids, sometimes people will use antibiotics because of the anti-inflammatory effect of antibiotics. But, you know, this is not an infectious process. As I mentioned, HBO sometimes treats this. And then really, most recently, what has been shown to be the most helpful for this, believe it or not, is <laughs> somewhat ironically, is antiresorptives. So pamidronate or aredia has been the drug that's been primarily studied for this. And in many of the protocols, these patients will get a number of infusions of the medication and then they stop having these symptoms of pain, swelling, trismus, you know, without the infectious causes. And again, this is stopping that osteoclast mediated process, very similar to how it's used in patients that have osteoporosis and and osteopenia. Along that same line, many people have success using the drugs that are used for rheumatologic processes, these biologics like Etanercept, which is Embril, Humira, which is Adalinumab. Some people even use the newer ones like Actemra, which is an anti interleukin 6 inhibitor. And if you think about it, this is all due to this imbalance of the immune factors. And so I've had multiple patients that I've had treated by rheumatologists, either with anti-resorptives or for one reason or another with a DMARD or biologic with some good success, which is very counterintuitive. And again, this is the confusing part of this where many times I see these patients and they've been treated over and over and over again with antibiotics to no avail. And all you got to do is chat with them and say, "Did, did you ever have pus? No. Did you ever have exposed bone? No. Did you ever have draining sinus tracts? No. And if you get their history very, very commonly, it's this cyclic process of pain, swelling, trismus. It improves. Pain, swelling, trismus, and improves. And if you're lucky, you have serial radiographic images to see this change from osteolytic process to more an osteosclerotic process. It's a very interesting disease, and I think it's very poorly understood and uh, recognized. Okay, yeah, that's great
0: information. Super helpful because I think this one can kind of disguise itself as other things. So absolutely good to, to know that. Excellent. Well, I think that's been a good review. Are there any other kind of aspects of osteomyelitis you wanted to discuss?
1: You know, I don't think so, Grant. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, for those of you who uh, have access to AMOS, you should have access to the lecture notes and everything from my AMOS presentation on this. But otherwise, I think I agree with you. I think that was a good review, just as far as, you know, what we think about when we are considering osteomyelitis and, and really the diversity of it. And I think a lot of the questions you brought up are really important. So thanks for doing that.
0: Oh, no problem. And then if there are listeners who kind of have further questions, are you okay if they contact you or contact me to contact you or what are your thoughts on that?
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to chat with anybody.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Ben, I appreciate your time. I hope you have a good day. Hey, you too. Thanks again. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukie at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about guest you'd like to hear from or if you yourself would love to be a guest please please email me or text me at 720-441-6059 and I also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or you know learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast that just makes my day so please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode thank you